It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be together. I tell you, just spending time in corporate worship, just hearing your voices and just the joy and nourishment to my soul that that is when we're together like this, I just look forward to when everyone can be here because there is nothing like spending time in worship with you, and I'm grateful for that. So this morning, we will begin a new series looking at the book of Romans, and I'm excited. Uh, Some uh, have looked and considered this to be Paul's finest work, his magna carta, his uh, uh, magnum opus. Uh, Some have considered this to be kind of like the the believer's constitution. I think in the book of Romans, that's where we see the gospel really come to life. So no matter how you look at it, this is a really important book, and we're in for some great things. So as we get started, I kind of want to set the context for what we will be looking at together. It may surprise you to know that Paul is writing this letter to a church that he neither founded nor has he ever visited. And this is really unique in the New Testament because if you think of all the other letters that we've looked at, whether that be Corinthians or uh, Ephesians or Colossians, these are letters written to churches that Paul established to people that he actually knew and spent time with. But Romans is different. Because the church in Rome was established by people other than Paul. And yet Paul has a deep connection with those who are laboring alongside him for the gospel. In fact, Paul hoped that Rome would kind of become a home base for the expansion of the gospel into Spain. That's what he had intended and and hoped would happen. So he's writing this letter from Corinth during his third missionary journey uh, on his way back to Jerusalem. If you remember, he's collected uh, donations from the churches in, in all that area that he's then taking back, back to support the believers in Jerusalem. And after having done so, his intent is to then go to Rome to minister among the Roman Christians. And when you really think about all that he has done, and just the thought of traveling really across the then-known world back to Jerusalem and then coming all the way up to the other side in Rome is really remarkable when you consider all that he's been through up to this point. I mean, just listen to what he, how he describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, as he's talking about his ministry. And he uh, says, are, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, because if you look at what's listed here, it does sound crazy that somebody would keep doing this. He says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, in the ocean. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That's Paul's life and ministry. And when most people would be planning their retirement, he's expanding that work of ministry. His greatest passion in life 
is proclaiming the life-changing truth of the gospel no matter what personal cost it might have for him. And as we see in this passage, his greatest concern in the midst of that ministry is the health and well-being of the local church, which is why he's writing to the Christians in Rome. He wants to strengthen them with the truth of the gospel. And he's proclaiming that truth in a culture not too different than our own. At the time that Paul writes this letter, Rome was marked by civil unrest and rioting. There was a huge disparity between those who were wealthy and those who were poor, and it was creating all kinds of conflict. It was a time of political unrest and failing economies. Any of that sound familiar? (laughs) And it probably won't surprise you to know that in the midst of all this chaos, the Christians were the ones who were looked upon with most suspicion. You see, they were not like everyone else. And so they became an easy target for all the problems that existed in the world at that time. After all, they didn't play the political games. They didn't contribute to the civil unrest. Instead, they had this seemingly foolish idea that the truth of Christ was the only hope for what is wrong in the world. So in many ways, I want you to look at this letter from Paul to the Romans as if it could have actually been written to us. If you're trying to navigate all the uncertainties of life in our world today, then listen up. This book, this letter to the Romans, is not just some some letter to a foreign people in a different culture. These are life-changing, unchanging truths that apply just as much today as it did to them back then. And so let's take this personal as we hear these words spoken to these people as if they were written to us. In order to do that, let's begin our time in prayer. Lord, we come to you, and that's our heart. We really do want to open up your word and read this letter as if it was written to us, because the truth is, it was. These are unchanging truths. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And although the world looks different in many ways, it is, like Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. In many ways, it's very much the same. And just as the Roman Christians needed to hear these truths in the midst of their difficulty and struggle, we too need to hear these truths in the midst of our difficulty and our struggle. Lord, would you change our lives by the truth of your gospel? And would you do that even beginning this morning as we open up your word? And we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 1 and begin reading with me in verse 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also were called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these opening verses, we learn three important things. We learn who the letter's from, we learn what the letter is about, and we learn who the letter is written to. Obviously, the letter is from Paul. That's how it begins. Paul, right? He identifies himself. But I want you to notice how he introduces himself. Because he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus, who is called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And keep in mind, he's, he's writing to people, most of whom he's never met in person. And I want you to think about and compare that in comparison to the latest conference that you went to when they introduced the main speaker. Because when a main speaker is introduced, typically they're going to tell you all the reasons why you should listen to what they have to say. They might talk about their academic achievements, their business success, their leadership influence. And it's not as if Paul is absent of these things because he came from a really impressive pedigree. He, was, uh, uh, he learned from one of the, uh, the most famous rabbis in one of the most prestigious schools at that time. A well-trained Pharisee. He was a Roman citizen, which was very unique among the Jewish population. He was in the upper echelon of society, and yet he identifies himself in the lowest possible way. He wanted to be known as a servant of Jesus. Instead of choosing to impress his audience, he identifies himself as a slave. He's not at the top looking down. He's at the bottom looking up. Because there is no greater honor for Paul than the privilege of serving his Savior. He is a servant of Jesus who is called as an apostle. And once again, this is not something that, that Paul went to school to become. He didn't go to school to become an apostle because, in fact, that's impossible. No one goes to school to become an apostle. It's a calling, not an accomplishment. It's reserved for a very select group of men who had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ himself and a personal commission from Jesus Christ himself. And that was certainly true for Paul. He had been commissioned by Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's greatest passion was proclaiming the life-changing truth of the gospel. And he explains how this gospel is not something new or something creative. He didn't make this up on his own. This is a message that has been proclaimed by the holy prophets all throughout the Old Testament Scripture. In fact, it might surprise you to know that there are over 75 different Old Testament quotations or allusions in the book of Romans. 76 to be precise in just 16 chapters. And all of them point to one specific topic. They point to the promise of a Messiah. Because the message of the gospel centers around one specific person and not some random person who suddenly appears in human history. This is a person who would come from a specific lineage. And Paul says that he was born as a descendant of David as promised by God that the promised Messiah would come from that lineage of David and he would rule on a throne that would endure eternally. This Messiah would be born in the flesh, born of a virgin into a world 
filled with sinful humanity, and yet he himself would know no sin. Because inside that human flesh was a divine nature. A divine nature that was revealed in his divine authority over disease, over demons, over death. As his disciples once said, even the winds and the waves obey him. The gospel is fulfilled in a single person that Paul describes as Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the Savior is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. The promised Messiah is God incarnate. Paul is writing to the Romans to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord. And he wants them to know that they belong to him. They belong to this Savior, this Creator, this Redeemer. They belong to him. He says that you are the beloved of God in Rome. Those who have been called by Jesus Christ, set apart as saints, who live distinctly different lives. Their lives are dramatically different than what they see in the world around them. Like Paul, they are servants who have been set apart for the sake of the gospel. Now, their ministry may be different than his, but they are called to the very same divine purpose, to put that gospel message on display through the way in which they live their lives. Because God's work in the world always happens through the lives of his people. And we need to understand that the impact that we are making is often far greater than we ever understand. Look at how that's true, beginning in verse 8 for the Roman Christians. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed, get this, throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, request making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul doesn't give a lot of specifics, but what he does say is the impact of the Roman Christians is having an influence to other Christians in other parts of the world. And it's not because they're a part of this thriving megachurch. It's not because they're performing these awe-inspiring miracles. It's not because they're gifted teachers who have expanding ministries. They're making an impact around the world simply because they are persevering in the midst of a difficult tribulation. They're hanging in there during hard times. Their faithful endurance is what is making an impact among the churches throughout the world. Because in a world filled with division, within the lives of the Roman Christians, you see the example of unity. Despite being surrounded by chaos, you see within the church of the Roman Christians the evidence of peace. Even amidst all the bitterness and hatred, the Christians in Rome are devoted to love. So 
Paul encourages them for setting an example for all the other churches throughout the world to see. He wants them to know that they are continually in his prayers. Because as we all know, it's easy to feel forgotten when you're in the midst of a hard time, isn't it? I mean, I think that's why the testimonies this summer were so significant in the life of our church. I can't tell you how many times someone came up to me and said, man, I can't tell you how much I needed to hear that this Sunday. I thought I was the only one. Paul wants the Christians in Rome to know that they are not the only ones. That they are not alone. That they are often on his mind. That they are consistently in his prayers. And the more he prays for them, the more he is connected to them. Because prayer has the ability to overcome any obstacle of of distance or separation. I mean, how many times have you prayed for someone and it has just knit your heart more closely to them because of that? Right? You just feel more close to them. Maybe it was a missionary who you don't see very often. They're on the field in another country. But when those missionaries, like we've sent out from this church, come home, and if you've been praying for them, it's like seeing a long-lost friend. You just can't wait to be with them because you've been connected to them through your prayers for them and them for you. That's how that works. And it was certainly true for Paul. Despite being prevented from making his way to Rome on previous attempts, he's not giving up. He wants to be with them, knowing that not only does he have a gift that he can share with them, but he fully anticipates that they have something that will benefit him as well, that they will be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That's the work of the gospel. And Paul knows that that's how God actually designed his church. He explains this in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Verse 4, he says this, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And here it is. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Don't miss this. Every single person in the church has something to offer that someone else needs. You get that? Every person in the church who belongs to Jesus Christ has something to offer that someone else in the church desperately needs. We were created with an interdependence upon one another. The gift that God has given you is like a puzzle piece that uniquely fits to the need of someone else. And when all those puzzle pieces are are put together and you see it in its completion, it should portray an image of Jesus Christ to a watching world around us. This kind of connection, this deep affection among God's people is what the gospel does. Even if they're on the other side of the world, speaking a different language, living in a different culture, you still have something in common. You have Jesus. And Jesus is enough to bridge any gap of difference. You name it. He covers it. Because we are one in Christ. We've seen this when we've gone to Mexico and spent time with Chuck and Carla Top. We'll be sitting in a church service with complete strangers, and yet we feel right at home. 
we listen to songs that are sung in a completely different language. We don't know what they're saying. It's not our language, but yet what they are singing resonates within our heart. And by the time we were there for just short times, we were knit together as brothers and sisters in Christ because we belong to the very same family. The gospel truth creates deep connections, and it does throw so through a divine power. Look at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that, I am, uh, so, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul says that the gospel has the power to bear fruit or to change lives. And that is true, as he says, for both the Jew and the Gentile. It's true for whether a person has their life in order or their life is a mess. For both the wise and the foolish, there is no boundary for the redemptive power of the gospel. And there is no one who lives outside the power of the gospel to change a person's life. And if the message of the gospel has no boundary, then neither does Paul's ministry. He will go wherever the Lord leads, always looking for windows of opportunity. And when I read this, I thought of you, Doug, because this is what you talked about last week. And it's what's demonstrated in the life of Paul. Paul prayed. He listened. He entered into conversation. He opened up the Scripture, and he opened up his life. Paul was eager to preach the Gospel because he knew the power of the Gospel. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I want you to think about that a minute because I think we gloss right over that, but this is a powerful statement being made by Paul because here's what he's saying. He's saying the gospel is 100% effective in the hearts of every single person who believes. Now, Think about pharmaceutical commercials that you hear on TV today, right? When they introduce this new drug, right? And they tell you all the things that it can do to help you, but somewhere along the line, they're going to tell you all the things that it could possibly do to hurt you and actually make you worse, right? One of my favorite ones that I hear on the commercials today is, don't take this if you're allergic to this medicine. Well, how do you know if you're allergic to the medicine unless you take the medicine, right? Well, what would it be like if there was actually a medicine that worked 100% of the time without fail and provided a complete cure every single time you took it? In fact, you'd only have to take it once because once it did its thing, you were done. Well, Paul is saying that's the power of the gospel. It is 100% effective in the lives of of those who believe. It will destroy the disease of sin's curse. It will restore the life-giving relationship with God that you and I were created for without fail. The gospel of Jesus Christ is 100% effective in the lives of those who believe. 
That's a powerful statement. And it's not because of something you do for God. It's because of what God does in you. It is His righteousness that transforms your life. And Paul describes it this way in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. He says, but whatever things were gained for me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Here it is, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, this next statement is going to sound a little bit heretical, but hear me out here. You and I need more than Christ's forgiveness. Do you know that? We need more than Christ's forgiveness. We need Christ's righteousness. Forgiveness removes our sin, but righteousness is what makes us holy. Our debt is paid through forgiveness, but our life is restored through righteousness. By faith, Christ's sinless life and His unhindered fellowship with the Father is credited to us so that what is true for Him in how He relates to God is exactly true for us. We need more than Christ's forgiveness. We need to be filled with Christ's righteousness. That's why Paul says in verse 17 of our passage that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. To say it another way, true righteousness is found in a faith that endures, which is what the Christians in Rome are putting on display for the rest of the church in the world to see. We are saved by faith. We are changed by faith. We are redeemed by faith. As Paul goes on to say, we live by faith from beginning to end. Trusting in Christ's righteousness means that we believe that Christ alone makes our life complete. Trusting in Christ's righteousness means that we believe trusting in Christ alone makes our life complete. So my question for you this morning is this. Is that true for you? One of my favorite songs in recent years is the song in Christ alone. What a great testimony of faith that song is. One of the things it says there in the beginning is, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my strength. He is my light. He is my song. It goes on and says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Till he returns or calls me home, here I stand in the power of Christ. These are the the convictions of a person who understands what Paul just said. These are people whose life are hidden in Christ. Paul is writing to to strengthen these same convictions in the lives of those who are part of the Roman church. And as we close this morning, I want you to be convinced that he's writing these words in the very same way as if they were written to you. Like the Christians in Rome, you also are beloved by God. Don't miss that. You belong to him. And he delights in you. He calls you to himself. He invites you 
to trust in him, living holy and distinctive lives set apart, divinely ordained purpose. He wants your faith to be an encouragement to other Christians, even other Christians around the world, so that they might see your unity in the midst of all the division that surrounds us. That you might demonstrate peace in the midst of all the chaos. Love in the midst of all the hatred. He wants you to flourish in the context of Christian community. Exercising your divinely ordained gifts for the good of someone else. Praying for one another. Encouraging one another. Not forsaking your gathering together like we do here this morning, as is the habit of some. But consider how to motivate each other towards love and good deeds. He wants your life to be transformed by the truth of the gospel. He he wants the deep affection that He has for you to to overflow into the lives of other people so that you forgive as you've been forgiven. That you love as you've been loved. He wants you to live by faith from beginning to end. Listen to me, people of Melanie Park Church, you belong to God. And He delights in you. So I'm excited as we take a deep dive into the gospel truths of this incredible letter. And no matter where we begin, each and every one of us individually, my prayer is for us that we're not the same person on the other side of this. That the power of the gospel would prove to be 100% effective in the lives of those who believe. And then I pray that our lives individually are changed by that truth. I pray that even this morning that you find yourself more eager and unashamed about the truth of that gospel in your life. More willing to share your gospel story. More committed to growing in your gospel faith. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light. He is our strength. He is our song. You belong to God. And he delights in you. So let me pray and then we'll close in song together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and that the word is unchanging truth. Thank you that we can open up this letter. Here we are in 2020 and read it as if it was written to us because the truths that were spoken to the Christians in Rome are truths that transform our lives just as effectively as it changed theirs. And so I pray that each and every week as we open up your word, that you would allow those truths to transform our lives so that by the time we are done walking through this together, we are not the same people. That we are changed and transformed to be more like Christ so that in that picture, that portrait being displayed as our lives are fit together like that puzzle piece that when the world looks at Melanie Park Church, they see image of Christ's love and grace and forgiveness being extended to them. Father, may we sing joyfully, knowing that we belong to you and that you delight in us. We are grateful for that truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. Those are beautiful truths, aren't they? That's the anthem. That's our, that's our story. And we get to live that story growing and ever-increasing faithfulness. So one thing I do want to mention before we are dismissed, that if you have the opportunity to come tonight, we'd love for you to come to our family worship. It is, it is very simply a time of 
worship and prayer, where we will sing of God's truths and proclaim them boldly because we are unashamed of the gospel. And then we will pray for that truth of the gospel to transform our lives and our world in which we live. So if you have time, please come be a part of that with us tonight. Let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for these sweet, sweet friends, for the privilege that we have to live life together, interconnected with one another, knowing that each and every person in this room has something to offer that someone else needs. You created us that way. What a beautiful tapestry that you have made when you built your church that was intended, and, 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 and we pray would ever increasingly display your goodness to the world around us. May we be that people as we go about our lives and leave this place this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.